Well, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 4 today, John chapter 4. We will get through the whole chapter before lunch, I promise that. It's 42 verses, but we're going to get through it. Uh, so this is uh, the fifth D now I've gotten to do. Uh, and what I love about Disciple Now weekends is every weekend is different, every year is different, and every group is different. Uh, that is an understatement with this group. Um, the boys on the first night played a game for about two and a half hours. We also ended Sunday school playing the same game, and I was the last one to get stuck with uh, the said sign that we played with, and Caleb, I do not want it right now, so you can have it. Um, so, if we look at John chapter 4, it's probably a real familiar story for many people. But what we don't look in the story is the aftermath of the story. We always stop at a certain point, and we never keep going. And that's really what I want to, want to talk about uh, this morning and what our students have been walking through. So f- for those of you who, who are not with us, which is the 95% of y'all that were not with us all weekend, uh, our students really went on a, on a four-part mission that we talked about. And the first step is, was just the real simple reality that, that we are on the same playing field, we're on the same level ground with as far as sin goes. And our speaker went and said, okay, now that we're saved, now that we're believers in Christ, what do we do now? And he talked about all the things that we can do now as believers in Christ. And then last night we, we concluded and we talked about what's next. What's the next step? What's the next thing to take for us and, and continue in our walk And for this session, we're going to talk about what's last. So in order for us to have a faith that matters, we need to have a perspective that there will be an end of time one day. There will be a day that Jesus comes back for his church, and we need to be prepared for that. We need to make our lives matter in such a way that it does. So let's dive in uh, Let's pray together and we'll, we'll dive into this text. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and, and look at a word that's been taught for so many years, Father. God, I just pray that God, you would help me to handle it well, God, that you would uh, help me teach it well. And God, I pray that your spirit would begin to move in the lives and the hearts of everyone in this room, that you will, will call them to, to respond in some way, God. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to tell you a quick story about a man born in the 1800s who is now dead, um, but What he did is still continuing to this day, and the wealth he built is still being passed down to his family. It's a man by the name of Alfred Nobel, and he was born in the early 1800s, and he was the inventor of dynamite. And Alfred Nobel made a living on dynamite and exploding and and really ending life for people. And through his career of doing that, he became worth $300 million back then, which is about $1.6 billion today. One day, Alfred Nobel woke up. He began to eat breakfast and read the newspaper. And there's an article about him. It was an obituary about him. And the title of the paper read, The Merchant of death is dead. Alfred Nobel was confronted with the legacy that his career and his invention 
was. He saw what the world saw him as. He saw that he was the person responsible for death of millions of people. And when he was confronted with this news, he did not want that to be his legacy. And so he changed everything about his life. He gave his fortune to what is now today one of the greatest prizes that anyone can win, and that is the Nobel Peace Prize. He sent everything he had away to not bring death anymore, but to promote peace, life, and joy. That's exactly what we're going to see in our text here. I'm not going to make you stand for 42 verses. I was asked about that in Sunday school. Um, We're going to do a little bit of it, talk about it, then a little bit more, and and so on uh, and so forth. So I'm going to read verse 1 through 4 in the Gospel of John. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So real opening, Jesus has just finished having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And he, he was in Judea, he has this conversation with Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. He, he has this great conversation at night with him, and then he continues on with his journey. And we'll see later that Jesus in this passage is going to meet a woman, a woman at a well. And these two characters could not be any more different. But it says here in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. And I want to open up and, and say that Scripture declares that he had to pass through it, but for Jewish men that was not the typical path that, that Jewish men would go because Jews hated Samaritans because they were half-breeds, as they, as they used to say in Sunday school. That's racism at its finest. But they, they would not travel through Samaria, so they would actually take the longer route and go around it to avoid having any encounters with anyone. But Jesus does something different, and it says he had to pass through Samaria. Look at verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he came from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. So set the context here. Uh, Jesus sends his disciples out to go get food. They're tired. They're weary from their journey. This woman... Comes and she sits with Jesus. She's drawing water. She's at the well. And they're about to have a conversation. And I'm not going to get full into the conversation because we'd be here for three hours. But there's this great conversation Jesus has with the woman at the well. And it stands out for three reasons. This conversation stands out for three reasons. Number one, it's the longest recorded conversation Jesus has with anyone in the New Testament. That includes the letters to the churches in Revelation. This is the longest conversation he has with anybody, anywhere. And he has this conversation with a woman from a culture and a country that nobody liked their people and had a very questionable moral past. So he's having the longest recorded conversation in anyone in history with someone like that. Number two, this conversation stands out because of the placement it has in the text. 
right beforehand, he has this conversation with Nicodemus, who was a Jew, who was a religious leader, and was a man. So three great things in their culture, and now we have the shift to the woman at the well, three complete opposite things. And then the third thing that wants to stand out for us is the message of the story of the conversation. Jesus will say to the woman, he starts with the conversation asking for a drink of water, and they go and they have this conversation, and Jesus tells her, hey, uh, by the way, I got some water that you don't know anything about. It's living water. If, if you'll just take this living water, you'll never have to come to this well again. And this woman who uh, is at the well by herself says, well, I don't want to have to come here at noon every day. I'd like that living water. But she doesn't get it. And she keeps not getting it, and she keeps not getting it, and she keeps shifting the conversation, and, and she keeps trying to insert religion where Jesus is just offering himself to her. But really, the message of the story is found at the very end of John in chapter 20. You don't have to flip there, it's just one verse. But John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 illustrate exactly what Jesus is going to do in this story. So if you don't hear anything else, if you take a nap after I say this, this is the whole purpose that we're going to look at. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's what the conversation with the woman at the well was all about, that Jesus wanted to give her life. And Jesus chose to go the opposite way. He chose to go through Samaria, even though Jewish customs said, we're not going to do that. He chose to step in, take the director out. He didn't do it for geographic reasons. But Jesus had a divine appointment to meet this woman, to save this woman, and to send her on a mission. And what I want to ask us this morning, if we can just ask this to ourselves, is Jesus was willing to cross any barrier to reach the woman at the well. Jesus was willing to cross, and cross any barrier to reach the lost. What I want to ask us as a church this morning is, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to cross any barrier that gets in the way of us sharing Jesus with other people? So that's really what we're going to look at. We're going to skip down to verse 26 in a second. And this is what I told our students this weekend, is that Jesus is not just in the business of offering heaven to people and doing nothing else. If that's your view of Christianity, you're missing 90% of the story. Jesus does not only want to save us from our sin, he also wants to send us out on a mission. So he saves us so that we can be sent by him. So let's look at verse 26. The woman's been offered uh, this living water. And what we'll see is that when the woman is offered Christ, when the woman is offered salvation, she goes... To the closest thing she knows to it. So let's look. Verse 26. Jesus says to her. Or, sorry. Not verse 26. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go. Call your husband to come here. 
And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The first thing we see in this text is that we live in a broken world full of empty people. We live in a world of brokenness. We live in a world of pain. It doesn't take us long watching the nightly news to look at the world and say there's something wrong with the world. And I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Raise your hand if you can say, there's something wrong with me today. There's something wrong with me. All right, got some hands. How many of you would say, there's definitely something wrong with the person sitting next to me? All right. So, right. Kathy, are you sitting next to Tom? Okay. No? Okay. So I want you to look to the person you're right, tell them, there's something wrong with you. All right, turn the person to your other side and tell them, there's definitely something wrong with you. So we all have, we all have something. We have some sort of brokenness in our life. And for, for this woman, we assume it was her moral past um, some people think that, uh, this is just a, a fun thing I heard in college, it, it's not accurate, so take this with a grain of salt, but someone asked one time, what if the woman's, all the woman's husbands just died and she wasn't just divorced five times? That would explain why the sixth one didn't want to marry her, because they all died. But, <laughs> but more, than likely, more than likely, Jesus is confronting her sin. More than likely, Jesus is saying, look at this. Look at your brokenness. You have a broken life. Jesus encounters with this woman. Her, his purpose is not just to say you're broken, but his purpose is going to be to restore her. He presses on the wound. That's so important that when we're advancing the gospel, we don't want to just give the joy, the good news, the greatness, but in order for there to be healing, in order for there to be restoration, we have to press on that wound a little bit. Um, my parents are here, so they'll enjoy hearing this uh, story, but um, I don't like splinters. I don't like needles. I don't like anything that goes in me that is not food. Uh, and when I was a little kid, I was probably eight or nine years old, and I was at my dad's house, and he has a, a pretty big back porch, and he told me not to walk on the porch barefoot because I could get a splinter. I said, no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'll be careful. About 20 minutes later, I have a huge splinter in my big toe. And what he does is he, he tries to pull that splinter out, and I'm just like screaming so loud, my brother had to hold me down while he pulls the splinter out. But as soon as the splinter was removed, the pain was gone. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing, is he's pressing on the wound. Woman, you've had five husbands. The one you're with is not your husband. You have a splinter in your life, and I'm about to pull it out. So what do we do when, when we get uncomfortable? We change the subject, right? And that's what the woman does right here. The woman says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20, 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place that we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But you will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is for the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So the woman, the, the wound has been pressed. Jesus is pulling the splinter out, and she gets uncomfortable. She don't want to talk about this no more. She just came to well for some water. And here, here's this Jewish guy. He's like, man, just tell me everything I've ever done wrong. This is real uncomfortable. She shifts. She shifts to broken religion because that's the closest thing that she can get to Jesus. And that's what our world is doing is we're offering living water to to non-believers, we're offering the grace of God to people, but what they're hearing is empty religion, broken religion. So Jesus is offering the close, Jesus is offering eternal life, but all she can get in her mind is religion. Can I just challenge you today? We're living in a lost, broken, dying world, and we have to tell unbelievers the news. We have to. It's not an option for us. If we truly care about the brokenness in the world and we have the hope of the gospel to restore brokenness and we hold on to it for ourselves, that is the most hateful thing a Christian could do. We have to tell unbelievers the news because they, they don't know the news. They think they know the requirements. Self-denial, do this, practice this, pray this, go to church, uh, get baptized, join a church, do all these things, they're missing it. We need to do is make the news so prominent that we make them look at Jesus in the news so that they can have an encounter with Jesus that changes everything. Look at verse 25. Here's the one thing the woman got right. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So pause right there. She knows the Messiah will come one day. When he comes, he will know all things. She is standing next to a man who pretty much knows her life story. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. This encounter with Jesus is about to change everything for this woman. Just then the disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? Look at this response. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. If you remember earlier in the story, the disciples went into Samaria too. They went to go get Jesus some bread. And the disciples 
only went and got bread. That's all they did. And this isn't because they don't know Jesus is the Messiah. It's not that they were clueless. They knew. If you look back in John 2, when Jesus is at the wedding at Cana and he turns water into wine, they were there for that miracle. John chapter 1, he called the disciples. John chapter 2, they see that miracle. They understand who Jesus is. The disciples go into Samaria and bring nobody to Christ. How is that possible? But in spite of the woman's ignorance, she knew one truth. And she knew the one truth that mattered. That one day, the Messiah is coming. That one day, he will know all things. That one day, he's coming for us. I speak to you and he, Jesus says. She changes two things about her. It changes her identity. Verse 28. She left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people. She went to the well for water. She left the well with living water. She went to the well thirsty. She left the well filled with God. She left the well with everything she needed. She left her water jar. She didn't need it any longer. She had Christ, and that was enough. And her response also, it changed her actions. Look at verse 29. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went into the town, and they were coming to him. This is what happens when someone gets saved. Can you just think back with me, whether it was yesterday or 102 years ago? I I think I covered everyone. When you got saved... Excited were you? You just want to tell everybody. If you got saved at a young age, you probably went to school and said, I got saved. I'm getting baptized in two weeks. You should come with, you should come watch. Because what I've seen, in, in, especially in children's ministry, when one gets saved and gets baptized, it seems that we keep having one, two, three, four. They come in groups, do they not? It's not just one singular person and then. Nobody for six months. It seems that they come in groups. Because when you were first saved, that's all we care about. We're excited. We know that Jesus is going to change the world. That's so drastically different than the disciples, right? How do you go into a town full of lost people and come back with two loaves of bread? How can you know the Christ and go to Walmart and just get your groceries? How do you you go to school, whether you're a teacher or a student, and just sit in a desk all day full of lost people and say, well, finish my homework? How do you go to work? And and I know you probably have a massive checklist of all these things you got to do at work. I know I do. I got a massive uh, uh, legal pad in my office of just things that I want to do, and things I'll probably not get to in three or four years. But they're written down. i got a massive list. But how do you just go to work and just grind down on your list and say, all right, I got my list done. I can go home. How do they do that? How are we doing that? They've experienced him turning the water into wine, but they didn't. They didn't advance the gospel. And what, what Barna Research is, is 
showing us is that 73% of non-believers say they would come to church if somebody just invited them. 73%. When's the last time you invited someone? So I want everyone to do something for me. And this might sound weird. I want you to pull your phone out. If you have internet, pull your phone out. I want, I want the church to join us in a challenge that our students have already started. If you pull your phone out, go to the internet app and type in whosyourone.com. W-H-O-S-Y-O-U-R-O-N-E.com. And it'll bring you to a page. And it'll have a map on it. And it'll have a little box that you can type in. This is a website of people saying, this is someone that I'm sharing the gospel with. This is someone I'm going after. And you'll see, last I checked, there were 51,000 people that were entered. So you can enter a name in there and say, this is someone I'm going to commit to praying for. This is someone I'm going to commit to reaching with the gospel. And what will happen is a blue dot will pop up on that map. And you can read every name of every person in North America that someone has entered and is praying for to reach the gospel. We have to be active in doing that. And this, this website is just one way to remind us of being active in that. What happens when we get saved a long time? I think we see it in the disciples. Point number three, complacency produces excuses. Complacency produces excuses. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. There's three ways in this text that we can make excuses to not do this. And I think Christians are really good at making excuses when it comes to not advancing the gospel. First excuse we can come up with is we're just no longer impressed with God. And I think this is the biggest one. The disciples were no longer impressed with Jesus. They saw water turned into wine. One disciple, his brother came and got him, standing under a fig tree. And Jesus says, before you're standing under that fig tree, I knew you. That They were amazed by him. But now they're not so amazed by him. By the way, this is not the only time that this has happened to the disciples. You'll flip over with me real quick, Mark chapter 6. The disciples are notorious for seeing Jesus do something incredible, and then like, oh, I forgot. I'm no longer impressed. You got to show me another sign. I'm not impressed anymore. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Meanwhile, the disciples are urging him. Nope, that's not it. Mark chapter 6. I didn't put it in my notes. It's another thing I didn't do. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. 
This is when Jesus is walking on water. Jesus has just finished feeding 5,000 people. Jesus feeds 5,000 people along with women and children with basically two fish sandwiches. Subway can't compare to him. Somehow the disciples stopped being impressed with God. Look at verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get in a boat and go before him on the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after that, he had taken leave on them and he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of night, he came to them, walking on the water. And he meant to pass them by. By the way, that should impress us too, that Jesus was walking on the water. And he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried, For all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with two fish sandwiches, and, eh, not impressed anymore. Not impressed. I think we often do that, that we'll stop being impressed with God because we've just been saved for a very long time. We stop caring and we get really complacent. Second excuse we may have is, I'm too busy. How many of you say, I got a busy schedule in my life, like a really busy schedule? Anyone super busy? How many of you retired and became more busy than you were when you worked? All right, I got a couple. But here's the excuse. Verse 31 through 34, back in our, back in our story, back in John chapter 4. Disciples urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus spoke to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We've talked about this a little bit, but the disciples, they go in the same town as the woman. They don't bring anyone back. They're more focused on spiritual hunger. They're more focused on their physical hunger of themselves than they were about the lost and dying world. Some of you are probably thinking the same thing. I'm ready to go to lunch. But... The disciples were so focused on, I got to get the bread so I can go eat this meal, and, and that's, all, that's all we need to do for Jesus. Just buy the food, eat the meal, and, and be, be done. The disciples were too busy. Uh, illustrate this. Uh, there, the Raleigh News reported this in 2016. Raleigh, North Carolina reported a story that a man who died in a hospital in North Carolina, he choked on his medication and fell and hit his head on the floor. And a nurse helped him stop breathing, start breathing again and sat him in the waiting room. He sat in that chair for 22 hours. And he had a heart attack and died. And during those 22 hours, he was ignored by every doctor, every nurse, every visitor. No one cared. What's even more heartbreaking is during those 22 hours, while he was ignored by the staff, they were playing poker in the break room. Those responsible for keeping him alive were distracted by a worthless game of cards. Their mission was to keep that man alive. But 
playing cards were more important to them. Church, can I just tell you this morning that our mission as the body of Christ is to go out, make disciples, proclaim God's word to the lost and dying world. So often we get caught up in our own needs. We get caught up and say, it's just too busy. Someone else will do it. Last excuse, verse 35. Jesus basically just roasts the disciples right here in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then come the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Last excuse is I'll do it later. How many of you have kids in the room under the age of 12? How many of you tell your kids, go clean your room? And their response is what? Can I do it later? Right? I want to do it later. I got things to do. I got better, more important things to do. And then what do they do? They reluctantly, after you threaten them in somehow, some way, they go in the room. And they do one of two things. They throw everything in the closet or under the bed. <laughs> we have a witness. We'll do it later. We'll do it later. Mom, I got this. I'm, I'm going to go play football in the backyard of my friend's house. I'll, I'll do it later. Trust me. So, Carlos, I'm sorry. I'm going to pick on you. So, it's just heads up. So, last night, um, this is free. It's not in my notes. But last night, we, we were playing a game in the boys' cabin, and it was about 1230. And I was like, I'm going to sleep. Y'all do whatever you want. But we're leaving at 8 a.m., whether you're in the van or not. Uh, and I'll... A few of them said, you know what, I'll pack my bag in the morning. Yeah, I can do it. I'll, t- I'll shower in the morning. 6.30 comes around. Start waking them up this morning. Nobody's bag is packed. And nobody's getting up. But Carlos was smart. He packed his bag last night. He had everything he needed. He had a shirt and a toothbrush ready to go. And he was able to immediately, five minutes before the van pulled out, wake up and get in the van. (laughs) Did you shower? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But for the other hour and a half, while everyone was urgently packing up their stuff and trying to not be left, Carlos is laying in the bed, relaxing. Because the work for him was already done. The work for everybody else was not. What Jesus is doing in verse 35, he's telling them, don't wait. There's a harvest now. There's people now that if we'll just go and share, they'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. If we'll just have the boldness to share the gospel, if we'll just declare it, To one person, Jesus says right here, the harvest is ready. Don't wait four months. The reality for us, Jesus one day will come back. I hope you believe that. One day, he will come back for his church. When I say church, I don't mean this building. This is a nice building. But this building has never been the church. We are. 
Jesus is not coming back to save buildings, and sitting in this building doesn't make you a Christian. Just like sitting inside a Taco Bell doesn't make you a burrito, okay? We have to have urgency to share the gospel with others. And our last point is this, that revival is still possible. So during World War II, the US Indianap- USS Indianapolis was delivering parts to, for the atomic bomb. They were spotted by a Japanese subplane, and they were sunk in 12 minutes. 850 men go in the water, and they're in the freezing ocean, middle of nowhere, for four days. Four days later, they're spotted, and one ship radios to another ship, and before we know it, everyone is coming to rescue the men. 850 went in the water. Only 350 came out. To this day, it is the largest loss of life in a single incident. And they asked them afterwards, they asked them, what was the worst part? What, what was terrible about that? And they said, well, on day one, the sharks came. And they just dragged people away. We could hear them scream. And we were just hoping we weren't next. But that wasn't so bad. On day three, we ran out of fresh water. And people were just swimming off to islands that weren't even there. And that was so terrible. They said even that wasn't the worst. On day four, they said it dawned on us that nobody was looking for them. And that was the lowest point for them. I challenge you, the only thing worse than being lost is being lost and no one is out looking for you. We must be seeking out the lost and modeling what Jesus came to do to seek and save those who are lost. But can I just tell you, revival is still possible. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans, not two, not five, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And then they talked to the woman for the first time. Probably the first time in a long time. For she was not well liked. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They no longer believed because the woman told them. They no longer believed through her testimony. Now they had their own and they were excited about it. I told our kids, our boys this last night, I believe this to be true wholeheartedly. I believe that this generation right here can complete the Great Commission in their lifetime. We have access to every, almost every known part of the world. We have access of translation for the Bible. We have access for so many things that we literally could take the gospel to the last bits of the world if we're just willing to go. Because I truly believe 
Jesus wants everyone to have a chance. I truly believe that he wants everyone to at least have the opportunity to hear and whether they receive or reject, that's up to God. But it's our mission to share. The story should remind us in closing of the mission in which we've all been called to. May we be reminded that those who are recipients of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ must declare the news with others. Many believed. Maybe you're here and somebody invited you. Maybe you're here and you, you were invited by someone who loves the Lord and lo- loves Jesus and, and is serving him with everything that they are, but you don't know him. This can be the challenge to you that you cannot get to heaven through other people's worship of God. You must believe yourself. You must be saved for yourself. Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, what did God do? They sinned, and God made a sacrifice. Made a sacrifice for Adam and Eve, and he covered them up. Later, Passover comes. And if you're in Toddles, Primetimers, Bible study, y'all are going through the book of Exodus. And for the Passover, God said, you put the blood on the doorposts and you will be saved for one family. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest made an offering, one sacrifice for the nation of Israel. But now that we have the completed work of Jesus Christ through his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, we now have one sacrifice, no longer per person, no longer one sacrifice per household, no longer one sacrifice per nation, We have one sacrifice. He is the Savior of the whole world. John declares this at the very beginning of his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. Next day he saw Jesus, that being John, coming toward him. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. That's what he says. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. You've been saved a long time this morning. It's time we get urgent. This revival is still possible if we'll just declare it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you and we just thank you that, that you're still working. You still have a plan for your church. You still have a plan to save many more people, Father. God, I pray that, God, you would use us to be a part of that. The most joyous thing that a believer in Christ can do is personally lead someone to you, Father. So, God, we pray that that can happen.
purpose in your name. Amen. We're going to move into a time of invitation. If you're not familiar with that, what that is, is it's, that's simply all it is. It's an invitation. For some of you, you, you may have never put your own hope, your own trust in Jesus to take your way your sin. We invite you just to do that this morning. Uh, where's Tom at? Tom and I will both be at the front this morning uh, for anyone uh, who uh, needs to do that or anyone that just really uh, needs to pray, pray about who's that one person? Who's that one person I can take this to? Who's the one person that I can declare the message to? Don't walk out of this room without answering that question this morning.